Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Renowned Podcast. This is episode 13, and we are the co-creators and co-hosts, Mark Schultz. And Allison Hager. Renowned is a podcast for the curious. We dust off the commonplace and we look for new relevance as we force ourselves, challenge ourselves to think critically about all the things that surround us. How do these objects maybe echo humanity's past or reflect the present or maybe foreshadow the future? With that, Allison, do you want to let us know what this week's word is? Yes, this week's noun is rehearsal. Excellent. Rehearsal. All right. I have my die here. Me too. Let's roll. Ooh, I only have a two. I have a one. So it's you again. What? 2023 is the year of Mark. Apparently. Geez. I feel a little bad, but all right. We said we're ascribing it all to to chance. So here we go. (laughs) Exactly. So let me get my timer up for you. Okay. Ready? And you're just the hits. Go. Rehearsal is a repetitive means of preparing something for performance, but it begs the question, why does it work? Nice. You have six seconds left. Woo. Getting pithier and faster in my life here. Yeah. In my life, maybe not actually, but definitely in the show. Uh, Well, that's our goal. (laughs) For real. Let me do the same for you. All right. Ready? So 15 seconds on the clock and go. I have a quote from Mr. George Alexander, who was uh, an early 20th century actor. Rehearsals are a subject upon which many of us can speak with feeling. They are often afflicting to both mind and body. They have even been known to try the most angelic tempers. Time. Oh, you got it. Woo. Angelic tempers. Just got it. You say test angelic mm-hmm. tempers. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Ooh, that was your longest. Definitely. You know, I was ever. getting I so much shorter. And now that. <laughs> Um, so close. Only because you have done me this courtesy in the past. Just say that last sentence again, or the last. Oh, thought, sure. Thought. Uh, his last sentence was: "They, meaning rehearsals, have even been known to try the most angelic tempers." Okay. Excellent. All right, Mark, take us down the rehearsal rabbit hole. All right. As always, what a shock. Let me do a little bit of the the, the word. I, I found in my pattern and approach to this, this is how I find my hook. So rehearsal is believed to have originated on its own uh, as a word in the late 1300s. It is Anglo-Norman, so therefore a bit of English and a bit of French. So as opposed to some of the words we've had in the past, this one doesn't really go back, you know, to Greek or all the way to, to Latin necessarily. It's largely to, uh, believed to have come from the French re, um, rehearsal, right? But R-E-H-E-R-C-E-L, rehearsal, or rehearsaille. Um, picture A-I-L-L-E, much like if anyone knows the, the word of the palace Versailles, the same ending, A-I-L-L-E. So rehearsaille or rehearsal, uh, which meant like a reading or an account of. Now, all of that comes from the verb rehearser or rehearsier, um, which then had an A-L suffix, which we often use uh, in English, as we know, to make nouns out of verbs, uh, propose into proposal, et cetera, et cetera. 
So if you just look at um, réarcier and you look at the RCA part of it, right? Because take the RE prefix off of it. What does RCA mean? Uh, it is a verb in, I believe, in old French. I don't think it's current. Actually, I don't remember that. But in old French, that is a verb to rake or to drag or to trail on the ground. So if you think about it, your RCA is to re-rake or to rake over again or again. And that I feel like makes some visceral sense, right? <laughs> the act of rehearsing is sort of re-raking over the same thing. Uh, and I don't think it's any surprise, particularly in French, that a lot of the verbs and so on came from uh, uh, ag uh, farming. What am I looking for? Gregarian? Agrarian? Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, farming. Agrarian. Agrarian. Thank you. God. Um, uh, background and, and, and so on. So many things around like produce or farming the land, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so bouncing forward a bit, if you were to think, you know, I, I believe most of us, when we think of rehearsal, we immediately think of theater and rehearsing or a performance of some kind, not, maybe not necessarily theater rehearsing, dance, some sort of performance-based thing. So going to Oxford English Dictionary, the first um, recorded use of that was from about 1579. And the uh, it's actually from an extract of accounts from a court proceeding, but it does talk about play rehearsal. And so it says rehearsing of diverse plays and their sundry rehearsals. Uh, rehearsals in that case was actually spelled R-E-H-E-R-S-E-L-L-S, -E -E right? And that whole, as anybody well knows that has seen Old English, uh, I just had to pause to get through that because the spelling is all over the map. But Rehearsing of diverse plays and their sundry rehearsals. Interestingly, right, we attribute Shakespeare to something like 95% of our language. And that beats out Shakespeare by about 20 years. But the next recorded use was in Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, Here's a marvelous, convenient place for our rehearsal, which, as you can imagine, okay. is probably the, the players in the show um, saying that. So. I thought that was interesting for the, for the background. So I basically took that as my way in, but ended up switching gears about halfway through, which we'll take a look at here in a second. Cool. First, let's, you know, jump into a little trivia to get us going here. Oh boy. As always, audience, if you're new to the show, I love to do this and please play along uh, as I ask Allison these questions. Okay. So based on Current findings, experts believe humans first conducted rituals how many years ago? A, 700 years, B, 7,000 years, C, 70,000 years, D, 7 million years. 700, 7,000, 70,000, 7 million. It's B or C. B. 7,000. It is C, 70 7, million. Uh, I knew it was one of them. No, no, no. Um, Anthropology major here, folks. Absolutely <laughs> losing all the knowledge as I get older. <laughs> so uh, to quote an article from Science Daily, a new archaeological find in Botswana by an archaeologist from the University of Oslo shows that our ancestors in Africa engaged in ritual practice 70,000 years or so ago about 30,000 years earlier than the oldest finds in Europe. So this was a fairly uh, newer um, 
uh, finding, which you know changed our, our estimate. So you may wonder why I'm talking about ritual uh, and why is that relevant? So it's interesting. I set up rehearsal as pertaining particularly to theater, which, which does make sense. And why that is, the, the bridge between theater and ritual is sort of largely unproven, but is also largely accepted that because there were religious or sacred ritual practices, things being, you know, costumes, particular movements being used, et cetera, that out of that, where you were conducting this sort of ceremony that was public, people were watching, things happen, that grew into sort of a narrative taking place and the, and the act of theater. In regards to rehearsal, I figured, well, without looking at the, the use, as I said, from 1500s or so, 1570 or 1580, where it was used particularly for theater, just the, to remember that the, the purpose of rehearsal, of remembering a sequence of actions, well, if it wasn't then theatrical, it could be ritualistic. So I kind of wanted to say, even if we didn't, even if the humans 70,000 years ago didn't call it rehearsal, if they were doing a ritual, they must have practiced it. Right. Like they must have like committed it to memory. Right. In no, some way. I think that's great. <laughs> right. Rehearsal so, is just practice when we break it down. Yeah. Right? So. so even if the word didn't exist, the, the act of saying, you know, we're going to do this sacred ceremony or we're going to worship X God figure deity, um, they had to sort of, I don't know. It's funny. It reminds me of when I um I grew up. I'm no longer. Uh, Lutheran, as I've touted many times, I'm now atheist, but grew up Lutheran. And so you're an acolyte and you basically, when you're in confirmation classes and so on, you have to rehearse like and learn, you know, go on a particular evening when there isn't a, an actual um, worship happening and yeah, rehearse, but you didn't call it that. You're just like, all right, I walk out here. I light the candles. I go back. I carry this thing at this point. Uh, so I, I, you know, it's interesting to think 70,000 years ago or so somebody was doing the same thing. Okay. So um, it did make me think a little bit like this whole rabbit hole that I was going down, the difference between practice and rehearsal. Because if I wanted to test my, my idea, right, of taking an action and doing it over and over again to commit it to memory or to refine it somehow, I wanted to sort of push my, my concept there. And I realized, no, at least where I netted out, and I'm interested in what you think, Allison, if it's not for a, a performance, right? If it's not for the sacred ritual, there's other ways of, of repeating an action to get better at something. And so for me, that was the difference between a practice and a rehearsal, which is also interesting because growing up as like a theater kid, we were very particular that we, I, I hated when people called something theater practice. I was like, no, you have sports practice. You have football practice. You know, you don't have theater practice. That drives me nuts. You have rehearsal. Um, and I think now I've actually, you know, a million years later in my life have sort of a rationale for why that is. I feel like if a hunter is committing actions to memory, a the best way to, to pull a bow really quickly for power, for, for speed, agility, whatever it is, that is not a rehearsal to me unless that arrow is being shot with an audience in mind for a particular reason, right? You are practicing to get better at a particular action. Perhaps I'm splitting hairs. I don't know. Actually, pause, Allison. How does that 
strike you. I, yeah, it's funny. Cause I'm like, do I save my comment here till the end or not? So this is perfect. I, I did not go down this path, but I considered going down a very similar path to you taught, thinking about practice, how practicing for anything in your life is a somewhat of a rehearsal to get better at it. And I was thinking about like Malcolm Gladwell and others have talked about 10,000 hours is mm-hmm. like the yep. amount yep. needed to right? To, to master like a skill. Although now a lot of people have pushed back on that, but um, I almost went down that path to talk about exactly <laughs> this and, and like splitting hairs between rehearsal and practice. So I think it's really interesting that you're going down and I, but I do think there's a very strong case to be made that practicing for anything in your life, if there's an audience or not, is a type of rehearsal, even if it's just for yourself. Mm, okay. That's fair. Uh, a challenge to that thinking I, and maybe it's because of you know this like sacred not quite esoteric but you know sense of identity growing up as a theater kid that i split the difference but uh or not split the i do think I, that I is i think different. your little theater snob is coming right. out <laughs> because rehearsal yeah i, I know, know you want it to practice. be sacrosanct for yes, theater it's true um because i would never say you're not rehearsing the bow and arrow you're practicing arch sorry archery better word but when you're rehearsing um, a play you're practicing the play before you do it so oh sorry. no i know does that hurt does that hurt a little bit you're exploring mm, yeah all right well we'll continue to hash this out i'm sure it's great i love it i love it okay yeah I, in my notes here I, I go into that a little bit more i think that the key difference is that it's not intended to be remembered for a public uh or group performance. Okay. Yep. And actually that memory is So that's is how part you were. Right. Yeah. Like that's how you were splitting rehearsal. It. Yeah, because I think for me you're practicing archery to improve the skill. You're not remembering to do it a specific way for an audience if that makes sense. So that's an, okay, another yeah. like, you know what I mean, a slight differentiation mm-hmm. because you want to get better at it, but the fine line would be if you were doing archery in a performance and you had to shoot it at a certain angle to do a certain thing, that might be rehearsal to me. Does that make sense? If you grab you by that little buddy tail right now, I feel like I got to pull you out of this rabbit hole a little bit. You are going in spirals down down to the center of the earth. (laughs) Okay. Um, So my last thought here was like, yeah, the act of... (laughs) Right. Last spiral. And then we'll do trivia too. Uh, so the act of swinging a club better and faster and harder can be considered practice for hunting, but not rehearsal. As I said, unless you're looking to swing it in a particular way to impress someone. Like if you're going to be like, I was about to say, what, if, what if Hunter Man's trying to impress that woman over there? I mean, right. That I think would be different because you're doing it for somebody and you want to like do it the same man. way or man. I was going to say mm-hmm. that. Well done. Well done. Mm-hmm. I, it's really funny. Like you hit it on the head, which is again why we're such close friends. <laughs> I kept thinking of like, oh, gay cavemen. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I digress. So trivia number two. <laughs> trivia two about how many items. This is a complete turn, but we'll we'll get there. About how many items can be stored in our short-term memory for about fifteen Wait. to thirty seconds? Is it a? Let me read that again because I know it's a hard right turn about how many items can be stored in our short term memory for about 15 to 30 seconds, a two B seven C 10 D 25. 
Two, seven, seven 10, 25, seven. You're right. Seven. E, seven. I only know that because I once learned many, many, many ages ago that, you know, telephone numbers, like when we were growing up and you didn't have to dial the area code, if you, you were dialing, you know, local, um, there were seven I heard because that is how much, that's like how many numbers we can keep in our head, like Excellent. for a short term amount of time. So Excellent. that's why I guess that. Um, and I wonder if it's related to this, although the timeline might be off, but so it was put forward by a gentleman named George Armitage Miller in 1956 in a paper called, quote, the magical number seven, plus or minus two, some limits on our capacity for processing information. And it turns out that has been one of the most highly referenced works in all of psychology. So, huh. but 56, we would have had the numbers established. I was curious when you brought that up, if. Yeah, but in 56, we might still have had like, I'm calling like, Maple 33. Like, remember old telephone numbers yeah. used to be oh, that's a true. word and two numbers. So, it, you know. Right. And, and I'm trying to remember when, when the actual all numbers. connection, yeah. the the operators. Right. Yeah, it might, might have very well been because especially if it's so referenced, it might have been his work that actually right. influenced that. Interesting. I welcome anybody in the audience, as we always do. Um, if you hear something and you know about it, or you remember something and you you want to find us uh, on social media or on the website, by all means, we would love to hear from you and, and send us what you got. Absolutely. Okay. So to continue on memory, as I started to switch to, well, why does rehearsal work, right? What What's, what's going on? Memory has two major categories and that question sets up one of them. Short term, which is largely considered to be storing information only for a matter of seconds, like we just talked about, which is interesting. I, cons I consider short-term memory when we talk about it in day-to-day -day life as being you know, that day, for example, or whatnot. But technically, mm. short-term memory is actually seconds. Uh, so anything longer than that, which can be you know, more than the seven to nine seconds uh, or up to things that can be remembered for a lifetime, would be considered long-term. And short-term relies on existing sort of material, I'll call it now, but we'll go into it in a second, or frameworks in the brain. So you're sort of using and repurposing what's already there versus long anything long-term requires what is called de novo or new gene expressions. Uh, and so, you know, why, what does that mean? So the genes when expressed are creating proteins and some of our past episodes, I think I've actually talked a little bit about that in various ways for tongue and whatnot. Um, so what I find fascinating is that our genes for long, anything long-term, our genes are expressing themselves, the gene sequence, and creating proteins. And so those proteins, um, to, to quote here a paper, the de novo protein synthesis theory of memory formation. Sorry, let me read that again. The de novo protein synthesis theory of memory formation is a hypothesis about the formation of physical correlates of memory in the brain. It's now widely accepted that physiological correlates for memory are stored at the synapse between various uh, cells in the brain, um, which I think is fascinating that there's a physical piece of memory yeah, being created right. every time that we're trying to remind, remember something long-term versus just sort of quickly short-term stuff using existing stuff that's in your, your brain rather than creating something new. Um, so furthermore, there are two categories within the long-term memory, what they call explicit and implicit. Explicit is declarative and implicit is procedural. 
And I'll sort of make that stick probably for us a little bit more as we work on our memory for this. As we literally, as we're learning this, probably creating proteins in our brain. Uh, So declarative versus procedural, something. So picture, if you have to declare something, you you name it. So that explicit or declarative long-term memory is what we apply to names, people, faces we can describe, things that we are reciting or declaring once we, we remember it versus implicit or procedural are things that we do. We remember the skill of remembering how to play the trumpet, uh, to knit a sweater. Um, so those long-term goals, like the old saying, it's like riding a bike, uh, that type of, that's a procedural long-term, um, memory. And one thing I find I, I gravitate towards in these is giving our, myself, which I enjoy doing, but hopefully everyone listening, like new frameworks for for thinking and categorizing things. Like I would never have thought of procedural versus declarative necessarily. I mean, it makes now that I hear it or read it intrinsic sort of sense to me. Um, but I, I just love, of course, the whole drive behind science and putting things into categories so that we can grasp it in, in new ways. So okay. are you going... Well, I don't want to, I don't want to jump in. No, no, no. Yes, but you keep going. No, no, of course. Uh, So procedural is something we do. We carry out, right? Um, A a memory of, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I said that like knitting a sweater. So when we remember something short-term, we are relying on those existing protein structures, right? And when we commit something to long-term or the declarative or procedural, right? Just to go over it again, uh, we're expressing genes to build new protein structures in the brain. When memories are formed, they start in a very fragile state. Now, I don't know this for sure, and I don't know if anybody knows this for sure as this is being explored, but it's interesting that they're fragile and can be easily disturbed or erased. So only with time over the course of hours or days, as you brought up, Allison, where you said 10,000 hours? Hours, yeah. So, Mm -hmm. right. It's this thought of you you really have to... um, it's called memory consolidation. You have to take it from a pretty fragile state to something that's reinforced and, and repeated and, and has that staying power in, in our brains. Um, so it gives me a new perspective, right, on, on rehearsal. And now I grew up as a theater kid remembering it in terms of why that repetitive nature of the practice practice huh, helps the body move um, faster towards the staying power or reinforcing um, something. But what's interesting is, you know, is that memory, is it building more of those proteins? Like, this is what I don't know. And um, I would have to dig into. And I also, again, I'm unsure if the research knows yet or not. When we say more, uh, when we say stronger consolidated, is it more of the protein being built or is it just a stronger Right. Structure of it? Like, what does it mean? (laughs) Um, And I have a question. I don't know if you know this or came across it in your research, or again, if it's still something that's being researched. But then when we're talking about things like dementia and Alzheimer's, which still have a lot of research going on around them, is that because those proteins are being destroyed? Right. And I believe, yes, like there are the, is it amyloid? There's the, the, the buildup of certain materials that I think are, yeah, degrading that. Um, That's as far as I'm going to go in terms of like saying yes or no, but I know that 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 disrupts processes that are happening, whether or not it is specifically damaging these protein structures. I think think that's the hypothesis that they're exploring, but um, seems to make sense if we're building physical structures to remember it, 
something must be degrading them or destroying them for it to go away. Um, I I have seen um, in some of my research, there were chemicals given um, to rats and I think humans potentially, uh, I'd have to look, but that can disrupt memory temporarily. So it's, it is affecting the protein structures and therefore you can kind of cause an amnesia, um, which is both terrifying and interesting at the same time. Uh, Okay. So this whole conversation got me thinking about lenses, like lends itself to why rehearsing in different ways can produce a more solid or more memorable experience. And this is to be honest, where I just sort of riff on my thoughts on this because nothing in what I read um, so far can, can reinforce this for me. But for me, one of the biggest differences in going from amateur theater to professional theater was the nature and how you're rehearsing and the nature of how you're approaching the work. If you are memorizing lines and that's it, that is a very amateurish way. And it's not nearly as sound a way to remember hours of lines and hours of a play. If you are going through a different if you're going through the event, if you're experiencing the emotions, if you're 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 pairing the script with movements that you're taking, objectives that you're trying to to um, to attain, I would say now that I've read this this research, you are actually making that procedural rather than declarative. You're not declaring the lines. You're not remembering words and using declarative long-term memory to say this string of words, and that's what you're memorizing. You're actually doing a procedure of exploring what the character is doing, the procedure of whatever that is. And it's a much richer way to, to fuse it to memory. And also, I guess, so I, I heard um, a great podcast episode the other day, uh, Helga Davis. I don't know if you know of her, Mark. She's mm-hmm. a chanteuse. I believe she was a dancer. She's wonderful. Um and she has a podcast and uh, I'll, I'll link to that, but she, she's, she, she's always interviewing, you know, poets and artists and actors and it's really wonderful. But she was talking, she was telling a story about uh, being on stage once in a play. And it just this makes me think of what you're saying. She had to come down stage at one point with flowers in her hand and she had to hit her mark perfectly so that the flowers were in the light the way that the lighting had been designed, because that was kind of adding, right? Kind of making whatever point needed to be made. And to do that, like when she enters the stage, she knew she had to take 17 steps to like get to this exact spot and turn. But then of course, at the same time, she has lines, right? She's saying, and so the audience is never going to think about all these other things going into it. But to me, that sounds like what you're saying. Like that's a procedural piece going into her learning like the physical steps, which is all part of right. the performance because it's not just the lines. Yes. I don't know. No, I, I do agree with that. I would almost say that rather than remembering 17 steps and moving that, that is procedural, but I, I'd actually add to that, that if the character needed to, here's, here's how I would approach that. Actors are going to do it very differently so that it, I would never forget that I had to do that. There might be something that I would imbue with the flowers that I needed to see them better, or I needed to honor a memory of something or, or what that is. And, and, and so therefore I would be seeking the light actively as part of the scene, if that makes sense. The procedure right. There'd be of like layers of how using you're, it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that 
I'd have to find the light in that moment because that's what the character was going through. If that makes sense, rather than having to say, oh gosh, when I'm saying this word, I better march 17 steps because I would forget that faster than I would if in the moment, you know what I mean? That's kind of what I mean, but I love that. That is such a perfect example of the, yeah, the nature of how you approach that type of thing. Because I mean, some people can memorize and I've seen it two and a half hours of dialogue, but they're just memorizing dialogue. I will also argue that they're not nearly as good actors because they're declaring the sentences (laughs) rather than going through the procedure of the show. Anyway. That makes um, sense. Okay. So, all right. Um, so the, yeah, the, as I mentioned, the key to memorizing long stretches of the play is to so commit to the emotional journey of the experience and, and to act to like perform it rather than just saying things. Okay. So what I found fascinating as I was digging into some of this is that uh, MIT news reported this year on a study uh, that shows that, that cells write lines of protein code, so to speak, uh, that can be a record of the history of cellular events of, or activities that that cell has gone through. Now, again, as I'm learning this, as we've said many times, audience, like we are coming into this as a amateur, so to speak, in the space, fascinated and, and, and challenging ourselves to, to learn something new, to, to shed some light on, on basic nouns, rehearsal in this case. But what I what I read, right, if I'm understanding it properly, is you're you either see that it's happening naturally in some cells, or there's a way to not coax a cell, but to affect a cell to make it do this. So uh, it's it's opening up a whole new frontier, apparently, in research on how the body codes things and and how memory might actually like these protein structures we're talking about, how they might be built. Because if a cell can be promoted to record its history in some physical way then is memory in some way doing the same thing, um, mm. which is mind-blowing to me. <laughs> um, okay, final trivia question. Memory is believed to be stored as protein, as we've been talking about, right? Believed to be stored as protein between which type of cells in the brain? One, astrocytes. Two, oligodendron. <laughs> oligodendrocytes, geez, I even wrote it out phonetically audience, but I couldn't do it. Oligodendrocytes, neurons, or microglia. I'll say that again. Oh, good. Well, I'll try to. Astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, there we go. Neurons or microglia. Like neurons is too easy, and there's like synapses in there. So I'm going to go with the second one that you couldn't say. Because if you made it up, I feel like you could say it. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I didn't make any of them up, but it is neurons. Um, And so. Oh, so I should have gone for the obvious one. Gosh darn it. It's all good. It is neurons. Uh, The other three uh, are apparently three types of glia, uh, which are just the the non neuron. Uh, cells in the brain. And apparently they far outnumber the neurons, which is kind of crazy given how many neurons we have, uh, that the glia um, uh, is more so. And number four there, microglia is the way that it's pronounced. But if you look at the word, it's microglia. So it's probably a smaller form of this glia. Anyway, Mm. so neurons of which we are believed to have 86 billion in the brain. So therefore, I think it led me to, well, has someone estimated, therefore, our memory capacity? 
I feel like if you have the number of neurons and we are know that protein is being generated between them, has someone estimated? And it turns out they have. According to Northwestern University psychology professor Paul Reber, or Reber our brains can store up to 2.5 petabytes of data. I will put petabytes into some context because I had no idea. Like, what does that mean? So we're probably all familiar with megabytes, gigabytes. And if you bought even the very latest and largest terabytes, right, of information. Well, the next level beyond terabyte is a petabyte. And if you want to even put that, because it kind of gets a little abstract into a more tangible thing to, uh, to, to picture, each petabyte is about 1 trillion pages of standard printed text. So, of course, 2.5 petabytes would be 2.5 trillion pages of standard printed text is what they estimate the human brain can store. Crazy. Crazy to me. Um, so where I left off in my rabbit hole as I finish up here, um, it's sort of scattered. I went, I went a, a few crazy, like random ways that I would want to continue to research if, you know, if I commit some time to it, how does AI commit or more importantly, assimilate new items into memory? And there's, there's some sort of similarity. Is it building strings of code to memorize certain things, much like we are building strings of protein and can that protein be considered code in, a, in and of itself? Probably can be. Um, another related question, it kind of starts to get into big questions a little bit, but does AI ever actually need to rehearse? Or is the memory immediately strong and consolidated, using the term I learned, immediately? Like, basically, do robot actors need to rehearse? Or is it one and done commitment? Because it's the nature of code. Mm -hmm. uh, other things that I would spend time is, what do the protein structures of memory actually look like? And do we know? Um, and, and which genes express for them? I'm guessing we sort of know if, if they've built, uh, if they've created... Um, uh, solutions and, and chemicals that affect memory if they're if it's degrading protein or or temporarily removing the ability to access it i'm assuming we've mapped it out but uh i would want to continue my rabbit hole yeah. with that okay and that is my my section for this week that was great mark that was definitely the windiest little rabbit hole you have had in our 13 <laughs> episodes so because you went so many places all of which were fascinating but I feel like for you, that was like a bit of a departure about how you normally do it. Yeah, and yeah. I loved it, right? Oh, good. Starting with rehearsal and what it means in practice and what that means all about memory and then how that works in our brain. So well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I hope it wasn't too windy. I'm, I'm glad you, you caught that. But when I- No, I, no, no, no. I, I got rehearsal, I'm like, well, why does rehearsal criticism. work? What's in there? What's what's going on? Right. How do our brain, like, what? Yeah. No, it is fascinating. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, I went uh, in a very different direction as usual. So cool. that's good, I think. Like I said, I did almost go down that practice route. Um, okay. So as Mark has already said, um, the first thing that comes to most people's minds when they hear rehearsals, of course, theater, the arts. Uh, so I, I was hoping to go down a bit of a different path, but I, I just couldn't find a hook there. So we're back to theater. So Today, I'm going to share some little-known New York theater history with you. At least it was completely unknown to me before I dug into the research on rehearsal. Uh, but first, we're going to take a quick sidestep to London. So towards uh, the end of the 19th century in London, the number of theaters operating in the West End Theater District in London just exploded. 
just boomed. And that meant that the demand for chorus girls boomed as well. And so very quickly, there were just scads of, you know, young hopefuls uh, who wanted uh, these roles and wanted a life on the stage. Uh, but these young women quickly realized that the theater is not all glamour, right? It projects glamour, but how you get to that is not particularly pretty. So they worked incredibly hard, you know, many of them needing to dance, sing and act, and they were extremely poorly paid. Um, and even if they were cast, so even if they kind of that dream came true, things weren't easy. So the way rehearsals worked, uh, rehearsals were, were held during the day. And of course, most of the performances, not all, there'd be a matinee here or there, but most performances held at night. So that meant just during the daytimes, long dead hours for a lot of these young women between rehearsals. And they had nowhere to go, nowhere to eat, right? So most of them mm -hmm. are just living on nothing, pursuing their dream. They don't live nearby because living in the center of London would have been impossible for them. Um, so they're in a precarious position. And they couldn't just hang around the theater because the producers and directors wanted them out of the way if they weren't in the scenes being rehearsed. So uh, generally, the stage manager would post the rehearsal schedule day of. So you couldn't even plan ahead and say, well, I don't need to be there till one. You know, you had to show up first thing in the morning, read the schedule. And then maybe they didn't need you until, you know, one o'clock or maybe they need you at 11. But then you had to leave at noon and then they didn't need you again till four. And then you had time, just a, kind of a nightmare for them. So pre equity guidelines, 18... I'm sure, where like, yes, like the union set pre equity some, some rules <laughs> for sure. So in 1892, the daughter of the Earl of Belmore, her name was Lady Louisa Maginus, she kind of learned about, you know, these privations these young women were facing, or facing and she decided she wanted to do something about it. So she quickly um, got a bunch of her fellow, you know, rich, noble people together uh, to try to see what they could do about this from a charitable perspective. And so they just suddenly, because you know, these are all the people who are going to the theater. These are the patrons who can actually afford, right, to, to go to theater and they don't want their theater going away. So many, you know, donations were rolled in and uh, they established a club and they called it the rehearsal club. So that, that's my connection there. And the idea of the rehearsal club, it was established in St. Martin's Court, um, which is in the heart of the theater district, in the heart of the West End. And it was open from 11 to 8, so it would cover the hours where these young women would need it. And they could be there um, at any time during those hours. And it was like a home-like environment, right? There was a sitting room, there were games, there's letters so they could write, you know, home to their families. There were camaraderie just of other girls going through this, a safe place to be kind of off the streets. And they could get, you know, an inexpensive meal. They could get meals like at cost and they could get tea for three pence. And, and they were asked to pay like some very nominal fee that that anyone could afford, like two shillings a quarter. But basically this place ran on donations. Sounds um, amazing. Yeah, right. So it was really this kind of cool thing that all these rich folks did for these poor women. 
Uh, and then in 1913, something similar was founded in New York, also called the Rehearsal Club. It was spearheaded by the daughter of New York's Episcopal Bishop, Miss Daisy Greer. And the first one, it had three different locations in its lifespan. The first one was at 218 West 46th. Uh, so for any of you who are not New Yorkers, you know, right in the heart of the theater district here in New York, it then was moved to West 55th and finally ended up at um, West 53rd Street. And that last location, it was two brownstones and they were purchased and remodeled by John D. Rockefeller specifically for the club. And he leased it to the rehearsal club for a dollar a year. So huge, like philanthropic investment. And the club opened itself in New York as an actual residence. So not just a haven for that rehearsal hours, but an actual residence. And they, their, their mission was to provide tea and companionship and uh, to shelter young actresses and provide financial and emotional support. Those were their stated missions. Uh, it was immediately in high demand, too high demand. At the very beginning, they could only board 10 young women at most that that the size did grow as they continued to move. But it the need was so high that some homeless young actresses would camp out on the front steps just to be kind of close to it. So it was really uh, well received. Um, and it, it was developed like for a similar reason that the one in London was, this was the time of Tin Pan Alley and the popularity of ragtime and the Ziegfeld Follies, right? So they needed a lot, a lot, a lot of young actresses. Um, it was such an important institution in the theater world that in 1936, Edna Ferber and George S. Kaufman wrote a play called Stage Door. And that play the plot centered around a very thinly veiled rehearsal club. Oh, wow. In the play, they call it the Footlights Club. Uh, but it, the, the play focused on the residents of this rehearsal club, these young women. And so many famous actresses came through this. Um, Sandy Duncan, Kim Cattrall, Jane and Audrey Meadows, Blythe Danner, Diane Keaton, Carol Burnett. When Carol Burnett was that lived there in the 50s, it was $18 a month for room and two meals a day. It's like this wow. amazing you know, benefit. Um, but sadly, in 1979, New York City revoked the rehearsal club's charitable status and it was forced to close. So from 1913 to 1979, it was this amazing um, resource for young women who wanted to pursue a life in the theater, but it was forced to close down. All of the three former residences of the rehearsal club, those original buildings no longer exist in New York. So you can't even go see them from the outside. They've been torn down. One's now like a parking garage. One's the Marriott or something. Um, but if you'd like to get a sense of what that the club might have been like, I recommend watching Stage Door, the movie. So a year after the play Stage Door came out, 1937, uh, a movie was created loosely based on the play. Apparently they, they adapted it quite a lot into something else. But the movie stars Catherine Hepburn, Ginger Rogers, Lucille Ball, just this huge host of other remarkable actresses from the generation. And it follows the lives of these young women looking to make it big in the theater world. And, and all that entailed, you know, it's not all pretty. In fact, most of it wasn't pretty from not being able to afford to eat right. to the not just the camaraderie, but the rivalry between, you know, young actresses going for the same roles uh, to like a lot of what we would now call Me Too moments. And now even back then, like that's what was happening to get a role in a lot of cases. Um, I'm glad you mentioned dialogue, that because before when I said sounds amazing, I immediately thought I'm sure I'm romanticizing it. 
Like, although I'm sure it had its major upswing and, and upside, everything you just listed, right. I was thinking, oh, there's got to be some, yeah. There's got to be that Negatives. Too. The dialogue in the film is fire. Like, it is so good. It, it is worth watching the film just to watch these amazing actresses and, and their lines firing back and forth. And as it turns out, having, like re, after I watched the film, I researched it a lot more. Ironically, since today's noun is rehearsal, and when you think of rehearsal, you think of there is a script, there are all these technical things that need to happen, like, like Mark and I were discussing in his rabbit hole. Um, you need to rehearse to get it down. Well, the screenwriters, they'd see that between takes, the actresses just having conversations amongst themselves, not in character, their banter was amazing, hilarious, cutting, you know, funny. So they would just sit in the corner and write down all these things that Lucille Ball was saying or Ginger Rogers was throwing at Catherine Hepburn or whatever. And then they worked a lot of that, you know, IRL, that real life banter into the movie, into the script. So and, and also then during the filming, the director, his name was Gregory LaCava, he encouraged them to ad lib while filming. So kind of the opposite of rehearsal, even though we're focused on this being a club where women go between rehearsals. So I kind of love that. And it's really interesting because the production company for the movie was RKO, which was, you know, the one of the biggest, if not the biggest movie production um, company at the time. It was a well-oiled money machine, right? So that the fact that they kind of went off and went, let's just encourage people to ad lib and take this off seemed really interesting to me and kind of groundbreaking because that would not normally be how the RKO operated. Right. Right. Um, in my, in my opinion, I didn't read anything about that, but yeah, I wouldn't think me. so either, <laughs> you know, think of the stakes. Like, right. Yeah. They want a well-oiled like moneymaker for sure. So the New York times, I have a quote from the New York times about the movie. The plot is almost immaterial compared to the electricity of the dialogue, as all the best scenes just involve the girls volleying wisecracks back and forth from the tattered couches in the Footlight Club's living room, called the Footlight Club, not the rehearsal club in the movie. And they also pointed out, interestingly, that a lot of movies of the time, um, including like think Ginger Rogers, who I think came to fame, you know, her dance films with Fred Astaire. A lot of the movies just were offering like escapism from the depression, right? They were kind of these big budget song and dance. Let's just get people something to smile about for an hour and a half and, and then go back to their lives. But Stage Door delivered a more accurate depiction of the time, you know, people going hungry, you know, actresses not being able to afford to eat, boarding houses, um, doing anything to get a job. Um, so it was interesting. It was really unique for its time. And finally, another quote from the Times, uh, you wind up feeling like you've crashed an intimate, familial and funny party and leave wishing you could spend more time at the Footlights Club. So it was just really cool to learn about this club that existed and what it did for so many famous actresses. Um, and then to realize I could watch this movie about it. So so if you're still wondering, you know, whether or not you'd enjoy this movie, I, I honestly I can almost ensure that you will. Interesting trivia, Katherine Hepburn, at that point when she was cast in this movie, she had only been in five movies up until that point. So she was still very young. And four of those had been commercial failures. Yeah. Just I, I wouldn't have ever guessed Katherine Hepburn acted in a commercial failure. But right. basically, almost all of her movies were commercial failures. After this, this movie was so well received that the RKO cast her immediately after this movie opposite Cary Grant and Bringing Up Baby. Wow. Which is 
one of right a yeah, hugely famous classic movie studied and in every yeah. film school in the world yep. exactly so that is how important this film was for the career of Catherine Hepburn and and how wonderful it was and so that following year right Catherine was was a star was born or, or reborn and it was all on the heels of this amazing movie um in really lovely news to wrap this up the New York Rehearsal Club just reopened last year Really? So a lot of the actresses who came through, Blythe Danner especially, and Carol Burnett, and then many, many other people raised funds and they've reopened it. It's now incarnated as a set of rooms in the Webster Apartments here in Manhattan. So the 12th floor of the Webster Apartments is now for young women. The rents are highly subsidized. I think... Um, the young women are asked to pay a thousand a month for a room and board, which I know sounds like a lot if you don't live in New York City, but trust me, if you live in New York City, that is the best you're going to get. They also set them up with internships and do a lot of things. So it's just really, really, really exciting that it came full circle and that it's back and that people are still willing to kind of invest charitably um, in, in making sure that theater and art can still be created. Amazing. I, I also wonder if, um, I believe the program still exists, uh, there, there are other actor housing applications um, uh, actors can apply to, and it's you know fairly limited in terms of if you're going to get in. But if you are accepted, it is much less um, yeah. to to live there and so on. But the, the wait lists are crazy long, and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm just curious if everything you've just described, which is such a wonderful history of that, was you know the the precursor of that type of program. But it's so exciting yeah. to hear that the actual like you know that they brought back and called it the same thing. Yeah, which I love. And um, their website, I, I, it's a charitable organization, right? I don't, I don't want to put it down, but it, it was hard to find a lot of good information. Um, I want someone to donate their time to help them create like an amazing and user-friendly website. But what, what they were at, at least some point, I don't know if it's on hold trying to do, was create an actual documentary about the history of the club. And that's not done yet, but there is like a little snippet on the website that will link and you can watch that and, and see some of the old footage of New York and the theater district at that time and and all of um, all of that stuff. Oh, amazing. So I'm going to have to find the, the film too. Um, do you happen to remember what platform... It might be on. Yes. So I'll link like to Rotten Tomatoes or something, which if you don't know, Rotten Tomatoes is a great site, of course, for looking up films, but also they generally say where to watch. Oh, okay, great. And and you can see this one I had to, I watched it on Prime and I had to, um, you know, pay $2 to rent it or something. Okay. Like I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. Um, one side note that's not related to this, but I think it's something else that people might find really interesting uh, about New York history, not about rehearsals. There is another film called The Stage Door Canteen. And I was looking for this move, this Catherine Hepburn movie on YouTube, hoping I could find it there and not have to pay the two dollars. So uh, it was like Stage Door Canteen. Catherine Hepburn. I thought, well, this must be it. I watched a full half, if not more of that movie before realizing this was the wrong movie. I'm like, when are we going to get to the women in the rehearsal club? But I learned another great bit of New York history, which is there was a canteen called the stage door canteen. As far, far as I could tell through, I really dug into it and I couldn't find, I, there was no like connection to the rehearsal club or the stage door movies, but it was run during World War II. And when GIs were in New York before they shipped out in World War II, 
they could come to the, I just got chills a little bit. They could come to the stage door canteen and get a free meal. And the people who bust the tables and wait, waitressed and all of that. And then there were, there were bands and, you know, songs and all of this stuff were famous actors and actresses from the time. Oh, wow. So actors would be bussing the tables and actresses would be serving the food. And then young women, probably a lot of the young women who lived actually in, in, I would assume in the rehearsal club, those, those types of young women who wanted to be in the theater world would come to, to sit and have dinner with the young man, you know, to oh, chit chat yeah. with them, to dance with them, that sort of thing. And then, some of the most famous comedians and singers and band leaders of the time came and performed for them. And so the movie show, it's not a documentary, it, you know, it's a reenactment, but it also has some very famous uh, performers from that time in that. And then the men of course are like shipping off to war, which makes it particularly poignant. Like this is a right. sort of last taste of home and having someone to talk to. And so many of those men were teenagers, you know, 18 and yeah. 19 years old. Uh, but that's also, I, I will link that if anyone's interested in watching that it's, it's definitely like a feel good yet also tug your heartstrings sort of movie. Um, so there you go. So you hadn't heard of the rehearsal club either, Mark, with no. your theater history. I thought maybe this would be something you no, would know. No, not at all. That's, that's, I mean, that's such great work, Allison. Uh, and, and wonderful to hear that that whole history is, yeah. Only fascinating, but important and interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. So, um, big questions, Mark, yeah. what do you have for us? Uh, I sort of have just one, one really sort of a two-parter, right. but, but one thing that, uh, I already know is going to creep you out. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, so <laughs> what? if cells can be programmed to record cellular history, and memory is believed to be recorded through gene expression, right, in, in, in the cellular environment and the, and the creation of these protein structures. Therefore, does it stand to reason that in the future, each human can become a recording device capturing a record of everything they have experienced and remembered? <laughs> Wouldn't, and then the last thought, Wouldn't such a reality dwarf the current privacy debate raging over mobile phone access and memory, you know, and how will we agree on the fundamental boundaries of such access? And that all ladders up, I think, to how we define truth, because therefore anything codable can be hacked and manipulated. Oh, this is so good. I feel like we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> um, so there is a Black Mirror episode that delves into this. I don't oh, know if you've wow. ever watched Black Mirror. I have Rock. watched parts of them and I love the show, but I haven't watched recently. Yeah. So yeah, I clearly missed this one. I read something funny like a year or two ago, maybe it was our pandemic year, where someone wrote, you know, on social media somewhere like, um, is Black Mirror not a show? Like, is it just not on anymore? Have they not done a new season? Because the world has gotten like more screwed up than anything they could come <laughs> right. up with. And I was like, right. yep. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's but an I think episode. They have continued, I'll find right? out. Which I one think it there's is. new seasons. I, I, think I think now they. I but think. Yeah. I think so. I, I'm gonna have to check, but I okay. really love that show. And there was an episode. It might have even been in the first season. It's an older one. I'll, I'll find it and I'll link it. But it basically what you're talking about now. It it included some built-in technology as well. But it's exactly what you're saying. Everything we're doing, you know, is being recorded. Just an implant that you have maybe in your eye or your brain or whatever, right. everything. 
every conversation. So imagine you're having an argument with like your partner and then you're like, you said this. No, I didn't. You can actually like review the tape. Like right, you can right. go back. Oh gosh, no, yeah. Or, the future of wearables, right? Yeah. That that actually right. feels very around the corner. But gosh, if, if this type of programming, you're basically creating a computer just biochemically. <laughs> you wouldn't but, need it. Yeah, which is right. right, which would be like that next step. And then I think that really important question you asked, I think there'd be so much benefit to that. Uh, think about um witnesses to a crime for instance, right. because we all know how fungible memory is and how trauma can affect memory. Many things can affect memory. And that's why eyewitness accounts are not always um, accurate, having nothing to do with the eyewitness. The eyewitness thinks they're telling exactly what they saw, right? But other brain chemistry is happening there. So it would be really helpful. That would be a benefit. But then your point about privacy invasion is massive. I mean, it's a huge issue right now, just with all of our devices and all the terms and uh, conditions that we just say, yep, I agree without even reading right. and how much, right. how many third parties are getting our data and that alone. So, wow, Mark, you're right. It is very disturbing, but it doesn't seem out of the question. Right. I mean, the moment I read that they are able to a understand or see that a, a cell is recording its own cellular activity in a chain of protein that, yeah, that just strikes me as that's code. That's, and if, if you can, if you're creating it, it can then be read to recount what has happened. Right. So <laughs> yikes. <laughs> but to your wow. point, that doesn't mean that that is objective truth. That is different than the wearable you were talking about where something is being recorded like a camera, because this almost becomes a bio, like a, a, a mental bio camera. And to your point, well, it raises another question. Is it, what am I trying to say? This, this is going really down there. On a cellular level, if that were to be recorded, is that accurate? And is it only our memory, our reading of it that gets, right. yeah, that gets exactly. distorted? You know what I mean? When you go back and read that chain right. of protein, is that where the interpretation gets skewed? Or is that, the actual original writing of that protein skewed? I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Because we're the way we're experiencing it, we're skewing it, or is it absolutely clean and pure? But then whatever on top of that, whatever trauma, yes, whatever, whatever recovery, whatever reading, like you know, it's like in a computer. If the, the the putting of the bytes of memory is actually accurate, but then the retrieval of that and reporting it out is what's skewed. Yeah, anyway. right. <laughs> well, maybe we'll find out in you know fifty years. Or probably so not us, but other people. Right, right. The exactly. World has survives. Been been destroyed <laughs> sorry getting dark. Well, getting yeah, we're, dark. So, we're so optimistic oh i love that's that's the best big question mine are nowhere near as cool i'm sure um, they are no they're really not i have two though but the, but one i'm just going to throw out there very quickly and we don't have to talk about because i feel like in another episode we we went down this a little bit maybe our first episode when i was talking about art and science in relation to edgar okay. poe but just kind of thinking about all the these amazing charitable organizations like the rehearsal club and what Mark mentioned, like subsidized housing in New York city for artists. Um, are the arts really important enough that they should be charitably funded with so much else going on in the world right now? And if so, why? And I, again, I think we really covered this in the first episode, but I, th I thought I'd just throw that out to see if you have like a little sound bite there, Mark, since you are. You yes. Know, an and I would immediately say yes, because it's a complex question that I could probably, and anybody can and has gone on and on about, but I would say 
anything that expands just expands erases lines of of empathy and sympathy sorry crosses from sympathy to empathy or plays with that line to put yourself literally in someone else's shoes or to experience the struggle to be human and to do the best you can with what you have to deal with everything from existential anxiety to the, what is common in our experience to you know, to really putting an understanding, a visceral understanding to what someone else is struggling with and how common the themes are in those struggles is one of the best educations I think you can have. And it tempers, is that the right word? Or it tethers pure scientific knowledge to a deeper understanding of the human condition that I think works very importantly together. Um, I've refined the, the thinking, I think in, in my own approach to life. But one thing I always said as a, as a kid growing up was because I, well, it gets tricky, right? Is I don't believe in the soul, but I, I used to say as a kid growing up religiously, soulless intellect is the most dangerous thing you can have to have incredible capacity for knowledge and an understanding say of, you know, when I was younger learning about atomic weapons and things like this, but to not tether that to a deeper understanding of the human condition means you're just building stronger weapons, but it's how you use them in a, in a, in a humane uh, way to enrich lives and value human experience. Um, anyway, I probably sound like I'm getting immediately on a soapbox, but that type of thing, I felt like the art served the purpose of helping us share what it what it is to face and understand our emotions and be there for each other as a humanity and, 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 and therefore not create a moral decision framework, but I guess it, it is that to a degree, but so anyway, I'll, I'll cut myself short there, but yes, I think it, it is wildly important, especially in this day and age where you talk about the desensitization to violence that video games and things can have and what that's doing to, to people um, in, Think of someone from the 1800s, say, if they were to watch a violent episode, say say something we're desensitized to in films where someone's guts get ripped out in a, in a particularly gory thing. I think they literally would have had a, a very extreme reaction of throwing up, vomit, like everything else. We no longer have that. And I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing. Most of me thinks that's bad. You know? Um, I would agree. Anyway, I've rambled on. Does that... Yeah, no, I know that's quite a sound by by any means. (laughs) But no, but I like what you said. Again, of course, it's unanswerable. But um, you're talking about the uh, soulless intellect, just like uh, you had mentioned probably last time we talked about this uh, very Marvel movie reference, The Rise of Ultron. It's exactly what Uh, happened. Right? right? Ultron was like, I understand that you guys have just screwed everything up. I'm going to wipe you out. Start again, because that is what makes the most intellectual sense. Right. With with absolutely no you know empathy in there. Okay. So my my second question then, which I'm again very curious for your perspective as an actor. I understand in theater why rehearsal is important, uh, but can over rehearsing lead to a loss of authenticity? We often talk about authenticity in art mm-hmm. and how that is important for a for a connection, for art to be successful in connecting with an audience and making sure that the audience is feeling what you were mentioning, like these themes that tie us all together that educate us in ways we're not even thinking, like the James Baldwin quote I shared last time, like when he was reading 
And he, until he read, he did not understand that every single human being had the struggles he had and then how that changed his perspective. And so when, if ever, do you need to draw the line? And of course you have art that is like improv and of course they're not rehearsing, right? I mean, they have skills that they practice, but they're not rehearsing. Uh, but in things that are more typically rehearsed, is there a line where you think over rehearsing can cause a loss of authenticity or do you think there are safeguards built in for that? Such a good question, first of all. Um, so props for that. Um, I think it, to your point, that's a, that's a good big question because while people may have strong opinions on it, and I do, unanswerable um, definitively, but I would say it is again, the difference between amateur theater and professional theater in terms of how it's approached. Um, but to add a tweak to that, professional theater now in terms of like very commercial theater where people have tracks and therefore that means that someone can sub in immediately and things are, are are mm. mapped out so specifically that is very different than the type of theater I was trained in, which is not about that type of machine. So there's a, a term that you learn if you've, you've grown up um, doing theater um, in community theater or, or whatnot, and it's called blocking. You may have heard that you block out um, a scene and um that is a, a much hated and reviled term in many ways because blocking means that the director has said, okay, actor, you're going to move on this line to the couch, say X, Y, and Z, move to the table and do that. Now, that does a few things. A, it doesn't keep the dynamics of the actor rich and, and involved. It becomes mechanical. And therefore I would say, if that's the style, you can over rehearse it because then it's becoming stale because the actor's not necessarily imbuing anything there. Um, they, they can, if they're a good actor, they might find a way to keep it fresh for themselves. But the risk is that it becomes mm. it stayed. Um, what I experienced and, and is therefore the, the, the benefit and the craft of, of training professionally for it is that rehearsal isn't, isn't ever blocked. Um, or maybe very key moments might be for something. Maybe if a sound cue has to like be taken off of it. But the way I always looked at it, and I know I'm not alone in this, a lot of the, the folks that were trained in the way that I was trained, you are creating a playground for your actors. Their rehearsal is therefore how they best play on it to bring forth the emotions and the, the experience that is gonna be most watchable and the most engaging for an audience. Therefore, there's a million different ways to play on a playground. The director is very specific about how and where a slide might be and where a jungle gym might be, but the actors are spending time playing on it and that's potentially different every time, but it finds a shape that therefore stays <sighs> galvanized and active and, and exciting to watch because then it's never the same every time. So you can't really ever re over rehearse it because you're delving in to a deeper and deeper yeah. level of, of what that is. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it totally does. No, that was really interesting perspective. I wanted to hear it from like a theater perspective. Yes, of course. Of course. 
All right. Well, I think that is a wrap on rehearsal. Do you yes. want to bring us back to our ratings? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So let's see. We were pretty close together. Um, you rated this a five. How are you feeling now? So I loved my little uh, learning, you know, what I learned and the film, but I, I, this might shock you. I'm going to drop it down to a two. Oh, wow. And the reason I'm doing that, yeah, is again, I'm very happy with what I learned, but I couldn't find a lot of interesting ways to go with this. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping it would be a richer topic. And so that's why, like, I felt, you know, I was in on this, in this very narrow band. So I'm going to drop down to a two. All right. Uh, I was at a six, so I was fairly close to you, a little bit higher. Um, and I'm going to stay right at a six. I think I, I kind of nailed that. Okay. It was interesting. I'm tempted to go to a seven just because to find the physiological, right, neurochemistry like approach to it uh, was interesting. But I'm gonna I'm gonna stay at a six. Excellent. Okay, so are you ready for our next noun? Yes. Gosh, drum roll. All right. Well, let me bring this up. And the Ooh, noun is drum roll. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what? What? That'd be great. Um, that would be great. The noun is difference. D i f f e r e n c e. Oh wow. Okay. Woo. I'm like exhausted by it already because I'm like that's huge. We say that every week. I feel like repetitive. We're like, is that so big? But this one in particular is. Yes. Um. What do you think? You're first this week. Eight. All right. I'm going to go for it. I am going to go. I want to go high too. I feel like this one could be great. I am going to go with a seven just because I'm going to play it a little safe. Okay. Um. So yes, I'm going to go with seven. I'm just putting this into our, our little sheet yeah, as absolutely. we talk. Um. Okay, well, this was fantastic, Mark. So that is a wrap on episode 13. So thank you so much, everyone, as always, for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow us on social media, subscribe on whatever platform you're on and uh, leave us a rating. It really helps other people find the show and uh, we would love the feedback as well. You can visit us on the web at renownedpodcast.com or on social media at Renowned Podcast. And of course, tune in next time for a new episode with our new noun difference. Thanks, everyone. That's it. Bye -bye. Take care. <laughs>